Good morning. Uh, your, uh, Doug, who's usually here, is a very good friend of mine, and uh, he has a unique ability of showing up in my life at uh, key moments and uh, kicking me in the pants. So <laughs> uh, he's a very uh, amazing friend, and I love him to death, and I'm very honored to be here uh, and to, to speak uh, while he's up in Sacramento. Um, to be honest, I haven't been in the pulpit for a while, and... Um, and since that time has happened, uh, I had this degenerative eye disease, and so I have a really hard time seeing. So if I just start making things up when I'm reading, um, you'll know why. Uh, I'm going to be reading from uh, Exodus chapter 3, which is uh, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. And uh, because I'm old, I'm going to read from the New King James Version, and you might have a different version, and that's fine. But uh, let's uh, turn there or follow along on the PowerPoint, and uh, I'm going to say a quick prayer. Lord, we invite your spirit that is present here with us to do a work deep within our hearts and in our minds. Uh, illuminate your scriptures to us in a way that is real, in a way that is practical, in a way that uh, gives life to us and uh, an understanding of you. Uh, we yield ourselves to you and to whatever you want to do, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the time of deliverance for the ancient Hebrews has come. Uh, the ancient Egyptians have reduced the Israelites to be nothing more than slave laborers as they were building their cities and building their monuments and all that crazy stuff, uh, baking bricks in the sun and serving with rigor. And so the children of Israel cried out to the God of their fathers, to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and God heard their prayer. And so what does God do? What does he do to deliver his people? Does he send this mighty angel like Michael to come down and just kind of flex some angelic muscles and kind of make a big scene? Or does he hang some like 10 million watt speakers from the moon and say, yo, Pharaoh, listen up, you're in trouble? Does he do that? I would do something like that. But what God does is he doesn't do anything like that at all. Uh, the Lord sends an 80-year-old failure one who once tried to deliver the children of Israel in his own power, in his own energy, in his own strength. He tried that and he failed. But now God sends him, uh, who's been one who previously had grown up in the uh, courts of Pharaoh himself. In fact, he was being groomed to be the next Pharaoh. But now we find Moses, he's hanging out on the backside of the desert watching somebody else's sheep. And uh, it's this guy that God is going to call. Uh, but it tells us something about the Lord, and that's when it comes to those that, he's, uh, that are going to be used by the Lord, often the Lord's choices are contrary to human reason. It's true. Um, St. Francis, who's my favorite medieval saint, uh, St. Francis was asked one day, why does God use you? Why does he pick you? And St. Francis fell on the ground and got on his hands and knees, and he says, because God could not find a more worthless wretch than myself. That's why he uses me. And I relate to that uh, more than you can possibly imagine. And so even if you just look into uh, the heroes of the Bible, uh, you look at the people God uses. Abraham. Abraham is the father of faith, right? But if you know his story, he doesn't have any faith until he's like in his hundreds. Uh, Jacob, the schemer, becomes Israel, governed by God. Gideon, who was so afraid of the enemy that he would hide out when he threshes his uh, wheat, becomes the mighty man of valor, right? And then there's Peter, who's simply Peter. Enough said. 
And Paul, the great persecutor of the church, becomes the great apostle. And so the people the Lord chooses are often those that would um, be voted most unlikely to succeed. Those are the guys. And so the question is, why is that? Well, it's quite simple. It's because God wants all the glory for himself. It's true, right? Uh, And so the Lord doesn't necessarily like it when maybe he comes to a a spiritual organization or something and says, no wonder God is blessing them. They got all their ducks in a row, right? Uh, they're doing well. They got a great plan to follow. Look at the people involved and, uh, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and so sometimes the Lord just is like, look, I want the glory for myself. And he uses all those things, of course. Um, my life's verse. My life's verse is this, that God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He uses the base things, the weak things, right? You know that verse from 1 Corinthians. And, and, and so it, it's true. And even when, uh, when I do give a sermon and, and people who know me well, people say, oh, yeah, Todd gave a good sermon. And they go, no, I know that guy. It's definitely the Lord. Trust me. And it's true. Well, anyway, uh, verse 1 of Exodus chapter 3, we're going to read about Moses who once had failed. And it says, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock back to the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So this chapter opens up with Moses. Moses at the ripe old age of 80 years old, right? Uh, Moses, who had been here in the backside of the desert, watching his father-in-law's sheep for 40 years. Now, what I find fascinating is that often before the Lord uses a person greatly or publicly or however, he often brings them into the place of desert and logs in some serious desert time. You ever notice that? Like think of John the Baptist. You know John the Baptist, he would wear the um, recycled clothing and eat the organic foods. He'd fit up in the North Bay very well. Uh, John the Baptist was a man of the desert right before God called him. Or, Or what about the Apostle Paul who spent three years in the deserts of Arabia before he went into his public ministry right after his conversion? Or Elijah was a man of the desert, right? Or John the Revelator, before he gave us the book of Revelation, was on the desert island of Patmos in severe isolation. Then, of course, Jesus himself spent 40 days of desert time in the wilderness before he began his public ministry. And you see, there's a pattern here, and that is before a person is used publicly by the Lord, the Lord does bring them through desert times, uh, dry times, isolating times, difficult times. And he does this so that he can work in him deeply, that he can also work through that person effectively. And the Lord allows those desert times in a person's life to teach them to be uh, dependent upon the Lord, to trust in his word, to believe in his promises, right? Uh, To walk by faith and not by feeling, to understand God's truth as opposed to looking at their circumstance and trying to figure it out that way. Uh, God wants to teach us to be content in all situations, And so often to do this, the Lord has us log in some serious desert time in our lives personally. And maybe this morning you're in a desert time yourself. Uh, I'm in a desert time right now. And I know that this is a great place to be because I know the Lord is doing a work. So Moses has been in the desert for 40 years. 40 years in the desert, and he's content with that. And so now he's ready. There's a work that's been done in him, and now so God can now begin to do a work through him. And so the Lord now reveals himself to Moses uh, in a pretty profound way. Verse 2, it says, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. 
So for Moses, it's an ordinary day, right? Uh, it's a day just like any other day. And he would just have his normal daily schedule. He would get up, you know, um, have a little coffee or something and cruise around the desert, make a couple laps or two and bring the sheep back home. And that's his life for 40 years. That's dull. <laughs> think about it. You ever think about Moses' routine? Just, you know, a couple laps around the desert with the sheep. Uh, that's very, very dull, very different from his earlier life when he grew up in the, the palace of Pharaoh. Uh, where he had everything at his disposal. I'm sure he had his own chariot, little Lexus chariot, spinner things and personalized plates. And he said, hey, I'm Moses. I'm, I'm num- number two guy here, right? Uh, but now he's out in the desert after all of that for 40 years, day in, day out with an ordinary mundane routine. Uh, but as Moses is doing his ordinary everyday routine, not expecting this day to be any different than any other day, he just notices something uh, very strange taking place there in the distance. Uh, he sees a bush, and the bush is burning. Reminds me of a story, actually. Um, allegedly a true story. Uh, George W. Bush was uh, trying to get up there into heaven, and, you know, Peter's usually at the gates, but uh, Peter was on a cappuccino break, so Moses is filling in for him just in case somebody comes through. And he goes, hey, it's me, George W., let me in. And Moses doesn't say a word to him. He goes, no, really, really, I, I really want to come in. And, and uh, Moses turns his back, and finally, you know, the president's like, well, why are you ignoring me? And he goes, look, the last time I talked to a bush, I got 40 years. <laughs> You're very kind to laugh at that joke. <laughs> There's a buffet afterwards. No, um, verse 3. Then Moses says, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So just gazing over the terrain, he sees this interesting sight, which is uh, this bush with a fire. Now, in the scripture, the fire represents the all-consuming fire of God, right? And what's interesting is this bush is not being consumed, and the bush is actually uh, figuratively, prophetically, a picture of the nation of Israel that's always in the fire but never consumed, and history has shown that to be true for them. Well, anyway, Moses has never seen anything like this before. And, um, you know, he figures, I'll just go check it out because he's obviously have nothing else to do out there in the desert. So he does. And so when he does, verse four says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside and look, then God called to him and Moses, Moses. And he says, here I am. Then he says, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. So now that ordinary, boring desert suddenly becomes a cathedral of worship, Right. It's because the presence of the Lord is there. Uh, this is awesome. And how different in my life are these times where I, I would be wondering, where is the Lord? Where is he, right? Uh, I don't see him. I, I don't feel him. Why am I in this isolation? Why am I in this very dry situation? I just don't understand where the Lord is. But then I learned this principle that wherever I am, the Lord is actually there because he's, he's everywhere. And if I just recognize that he's there in the midst of this, then whatever situation I'm in or whatever place I find myself, that too becomes a place of worship. And I can just worship his presence, right? Uh, And then what I started learning is even as I pray, instead of saying, you know, Lord, change my circumstance, now I'm beginning to pray, Lord, change my heart so that I can see you. Change my heart so that I can understand what you're doing. And you can draw close. Any place becomes a place of worship because of the presence of the Lord. And so it says, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. And Moses did that. Now, what I like about Moses here is his approach towards the Lord. 
it's one of great intimacy, as we will see. He just presses in to want to know the Lord more. But it's also balanced with reverence. And he understands who God is. And I think that's important because uh, today, especially in our culture, you know, we, we uh, sometimes, because we have this desire to grow so close with intimacy with the Lord, we forget sometimes that he's God and there's reverence. And, you know, we have our little dolls, the Buddy Jesus dolls and all that kind of stuff, which speaks of this, this you know, intimacy God wants to have. But we have to balance it with reverence. And Moses is a great example of that. And so God speaks and he says in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. You see, Moses understood who he was now in light of God. He understood his sinful tendencies, right? He understood his inadequacies, his own unworthiness. And so his approach now, you know, is humility. It's an attitude of humility. Verse 7. And the Lord said, I had surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. I like this. God says, Moses, I, I see and I hear and I'm going to act. I'm going to do something about it, right? You see, when there's issues going on in your life, again, and you wonder, is God even there? Understand this principle here. He does see and he hears your prayers, and there does come a time when he acts, and he will act, but he only acts at the right time, in the right place, in the right way. But you've got to understand, he does see and he hears, and that's because he cares. And so he says, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, in the barrier, that would be soy and organically product sugar. Um, just keep it relevant to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And Moses said, out of sight. And now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel who've come to me, I've also seen the oppression to which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring up my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You know, the Lord is saying to Moses, you know, 40 years earlier in our story, Moses, you thought you were the man. And maybe you've read that story where Moses wanted to, uh, he, he saw, you know, these uh, Egyptians, a certain Egyptian oppressing the Hebrews. So he thought, I'm just going to take that guy out, all, you know, Jason Bourne style and going to bury him in the sand because I'm Moses. I'm the man. I can do it, right? Uh, and the Lord said, you know, you thought you were going to do it, but guess what? That wasn't the way I was going to do it. That wasn't how and that wasn't when. And you did it in your own energy and you failed. But guess what? Now you're going to do it. You're going to be the guy to do it now. Because now that you've been here in the wilderness, I've emptied you now of your uh, self-sufficiency. I, I've emptied you of your, your pride. I've emptied you of all of that stuff. And now you're in a broken place. Now you're in an empty place. So now I can do the work through you, Moses. You're ready. You are weak, Moses, and you understand that. And so now I can be strong in you. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. See, this is a much kinder, gentler Moses than 40 years ago in our story, right? But he says, uh, you know, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Again, the self-confidence is no longer there. There's a brokenness in Moses. There's a new depth to him, right? He's truly a different person. Verse 12, the Lord answered and said, I will certainly be with you. 
And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. In other words, Moses says, I don't have the capabilities to do this. God says, well, you have me. You have my promise. You have my companionship, right? It's not who you are, Moses. It's who, it's who I am, Moses, right? It's not what you can do, Moses. It's what I can do through you. It's no longer about you, Moses. It's about me, you see. Verse 13. And Moses says to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, and they will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they will say to me, What's his name? <laughs> what shall I say to them? Full of excuses, this Moses guy, right? Uh, if I'm God, it's lightning bolt time, but thank for us, God for us all, I'm not. But uh, the Lord says, you know, the, or Moses is saying, you know, there, there's names. Gods have names. And the Egyptian gods, they all got names. There's Apis, the bull god, right? Um, there's uh, Heka. Remember Heka? He looks a heck a lot like a frog, the frog god, uh, that one. Uh, uh, Amun-Ra, the sun god. All the Egyptian names, they got these swanky gods. They got really cool names. And so what's your name? And keep in mind that in this culture, uh, the name was also your nature. So if you were called something, your name represented who you are. And so uh, Moses wants to know God's name. It's also going to reveal his nature. And so God says to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. <laughs> Isn't that great? God, does he mean I am who I am? So therefore, you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So what's God's name? I am. That's his name. Isn't that great? Uh, it's a very difficult name to translate out of the Hebrew, Right? Uh, it is best translated, I am who I am. It could also mean the all-becoming one. It can mean the eternal now. Uh, it's just, I am that I am. And its exact pronunciation, we do not know. Uh, some people say it's Jehovah. Uh, some say Yahweh or Yahweh. Uh, and that's because uh, when the, the ancient uh, Jews recorded this, uh, they didn't put the, the consonants in there. And it was, it was just the YHVH, the Tetragrammaton. And so the exact pronunciation, we do not know. Also, throughout uh, the history of, of, um, of the Jewish people, when they read his name publicly, uh, they would stop, bow their names, not say his name, and just say Hashem, which means the name, and then continue on out of reverence for the name of God. Uh, but it is translated, I am who I am, or the all-becoming one. And what it speaks about, actually, in the context of, of the way it's written, is it speaks about the eternal nowness of God, right? Uh, by the way, some fascinating trivia for you. In the New Testament, uh, actually before the New Testament, um, when Alexander the Great was around, uh, he took the Hebrew scriptures and he translated them into Greek, right? Because he was uh, doing Hellenistic culture and it was his uh, Grecian formula, everybody speaks Greek. So he took all the great documents, translated them into the Greek. And so when they translated this, they used two Greek words, which is ego, me, and it's really bad Greek grammar, but it's the only time they use it in Greek literature is for the name of God. It's I am that I am or ego, me. And why that's important for you and for me is because when Jesus is around and in the New Testament, whenever Jesus speaks of himself, he speaks himself as ego, a me. So when the Pharisees, remember the day they were going to, uh, he says, you know, before Abraham was, he says, I am. In other words, before Abraham was, ego, a me, I am that I am. And you remember that story, they picked up rocks to stone him and Jesus is like, what good work are you killing me for? And they're like, no, 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 we're not stoning you for the works you did, but it's because you, being a mere man, just made yourself out to be God. You just claim to be God because he said, ego, a me. 
Or when he says, I am the resurrection, it's actually ego, a me. I am that I am the resurrection and the life. I am that I am the bread of life, right? It's, it's statements of divinity, and it's very, very important to the claims of who Jesus is. Um, Moses, God says, my name is I am that I am, or I am the eternal now. In other words, that's where I live. That's who I am. That's where I exist. That's how I work. I am not the God of the I was. I am not the God of the will be. I am the God of the now, right now. You see, God wants to deal with you and me right now. God wants to work in our lives right now. He wants to give us provision and his presence right now. It's not it, what's going to happen later. It's not that, well, it happened in the past. It's about right now. And you say, well, what about tomorrow? What about next week? Well, when tomorrow next week is now, that's when God's going to meet you. Uh, but why wait? Experience him now. His Holy Spirit is within you. Uh, his presence is everywhere. He's with us now, always with us now, in every situation. It's very profound, and it's very beautiful. Every moment, him with us. He's the becoming one, the eternal now, the ever-present, the great I am. We say, I am what? What's whatever you need is the way it works, you see. Everything. Uh, do you need strength in your life right now? Then he is El Shaddai, Almighty God, right? In other words, I am your strength. Uh, maybe it's provision you need. Well, then he's Jehovah Jireh. I am your provision, right? The God of provision. Or maybe you sinned and you need some righteousness. Well, then he is Jehovah Tadiskanu, the Lord our righteousness, or I am your righteousness. And if you actually go through all the Old Testament names of God, they are all the needs that you need, and he is that for you in the present tense. It's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. And you should study these names, right? And understand that God's very nature is to be these things for you because that's his very name. And so moreover, verse 15, God says to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. And so go gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers has come uh, and appeared to me saying, surely I've visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. I like that too. The Lord visited. He's just hanging out, seeing what's going on. He understood. He says, I, I see the oppression. I see them cracking those whips on your back. I understand your pain. I visited there. Verse 17. And I've said, I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and to the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you will say to them, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So a three-day journey to set captives free. That's the Bible theme there, by the way. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and you shall plunder the Egyptians. So Moses, tell Pharaoh to let you go, but you know what? He's not going to let you go. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send him 10 little forget-me-nots, and then he's going to let you go. But when you're going, just say to your neighbors, oh, hey, give me, give me the goods, right? Give me some of that bling and put them on your kids, and that's going to be back-wage pay for all the slavery that you guys have done, right? Sweet hookup. So chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, and he says, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Uh, suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Moses, God told you that they'd listen to you, right? Moses is convinced that they're not. And there's another principle here. There's a reason that the Lord calls his people the vineyard, because often there's a lot of wine that flows, right? So Moses is whining here to the Lord. They're not going to listen to me. <laughs> but I like how the Lord deals with Moses. It's very direct, very gracious. Um, and, and what I like about this is that Moses, or excuse me, God is just concerned with Moses, the worker, as he is with doing the work. It's just something that God wants to do something huge in your community. He wants to equally do a work in you so that you do the work in your community. And they go hand in hand. And not one is more important than the other. They, they are interlinked. And so, that, that, again, it just shows that God is so concerned about us personally and his nearness and his presence. I love that. And so verse 2, the Lord said, what is in your hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and take it by the tail. Now, if you understand anything about catching snakes, and I used to live in New Mexico. We actually were stupid enough to catch rattlesnakes. Uh, you don't grab them by the tail. <laughs> That's a dumb idea, right? Because they're going to bite you. You grab them by the back of the neck, uh, by the head. But anyway, that's not what the Lord told Moses to do. He says, I'm God, do it backwards, just trust me. So he reached out, and he caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That's a pretty hot trick, right? Moses is hot rod. Viper. <laughs> we'll dodge the puns. Um, two of you got that joke, great. Uh, actually, it's just not funny. That's really what the truth is. Verse 5, um, that they may believe that the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. One thing I like in this passage is the Lord constantly says the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And I like that. And, and we, say, we throw that around a lot, but we always lose sight of what God's actually saying. He's saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the, the, the failure of the faith, and, and we're still fighting in the Middle East because of his failure of faith today. I'm his God. And I'm the God of Isaac. Isaac was kind of a, 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 not the greatest father, kind of absent, right? Favored one kid over the other. And the God of Jacob. And Jacob was just a, a conniver and ripping off his brother and, and, and lying to his father and, and having this shysterathon and, and these, you know, baby race and all this kind of stuff. You read a story. It's, uh, if you're God and you're representing as, you're not going to use these people to, to represent yourself through. And it shows that God is about people and he's about broken people. Uh, that's who he identifies with. And so I love that he constantly reminds us that this is the God that he is. But he says, uh, furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put out your hand in your bosom. So Moses puts his hand in the bosom. That means underneath his robe right here where your heart is. So put your hand there. Uh, and when he took it out, behold, the hand was leprous like snow. That's gross. Uh, and then he said, put your hand in your bosom again. And so he put his hand in the bosom again, and he drew out of the bosom, and behold, it was restored like the other flesh. That's pretty cool. Uh, then he says that they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be that they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, 
that you shall take water from the river, that means the Nile River, and pour it on dry land, and the water which you take from the river will become blood as on dry land. The Lord said, Moses, they're going to believe you. Moses is convinced that they're not, right? And so the Lord, uh, in his faithfulness and in his tenderness, says to Moses, well, I'm going to give you some tools, uh, a couple things that you can use to do the job which I'm calling you to do. And so the first tool I'm giving you, Moses, is your ability. It's your ability, right? Uh, What's in your hand, Moses? He's like, well, I'm a shepherd, so I have a rod in my hand. And God's like, well, that's what I'm going to use, right? Think about it. Paul the Apostle, what's in your hand? Well, I'm a scholar. I I studied under Gamaliel, the great rabbi. He goes, well, then you're going to pen the New Testament, right? Uh, John, uh, what's in your hands? Well, I'm mending nets here. Well, I'm going to use you as the apostle of to mend people's lives. Peter, what's in your hands? Well, I'm throwing, you know, nets into the sea. I'm a fisherman. And Jesus says, I'll make you a fisher of men. David, what's in your hand? A sling. Well, we're going to go smack down some giants. You see, are you getting the idea here? It's, it's an ordinary rod. It's an ordinary pen. It's an ordinary net. It's an ordinary sling. Uh, they're just, but when they're surrendered to the Lord, that becomes an amazing tool. You see, often people wonder, how can I be used by the Lord? The question is really simple. What's in your hand? Who are you? How are you made? How are you wired, right? It's who are you. That's the key. So maybe what's in your hand? Maybe for some it's a hammer. Uh, Around here it's an iPad, you know? Uh, A musical instrument, a paintbrush. Uh, You you holding a small child in your hand. Whatever that is, that's the tool. That's who you are, right? Um, Moses says, it's a rod that's in my hand. I'm a shepherd. And so the Lord's like, great, because you're not going to be the shepherd of my people Israel. He's going to shepherd these people out. Oh, but the plot thickens here. Because remember, the Lord told him to take that tool and throw it on the ground and see it for what it was, which was a snake. And uh, that's interesting because whatever it is we do, if we're living for it, if we're caught up in it, and that's our master passion, uh, these things in reality are just snakes. They're just going to turn around and bite us and destroy us. But when we throw them down before the Lord in humility and we pick them up properly, not by the head with prominence, but by the tail, because the Lord's in charge, then they become the powerful tool. Does that make sense? It says we lay these things down before the Lord, right? What we are is an awesome tool in the hands of the Lord. So, moving on. Check out his second tool. He reaches in and touches his bosom. Leprous hand comes out. Now, if you uh, students of Scripture might know that leprosy in the Bible is always a picture. It's a type of sin, right? Sin is leprous. And so when he shows what's in his heart... It's leprous. When he puts it back and has a second touch, it's restored. Does that sound familiar? It's what Jesus does for you and for me. It's an illustration of being born anew or being born again. It's an illustration of when we come to the Lord, he takes whatever our failures were and he makes us new. He washes them away, white as as snow, completely restored. And so the second tool here is simply your story or your history. This is the person I was, but God worked in my life and this is who I am today. And I have a story, and it's a messy story because that leprous is nasty. <laughs> and, and if you're honest about your story, it's like, this is just, this is it. But because God's involved with me, because of what Jesus has done for me, I, I'm, I'm here today. And, and so never underestimate your, your history, your story. It's a very, very powerful tool for ministry, right? 
And so for those that you're trying to minister deliverance to, if they don't believe maybe that first sign and they don't see what you're doing with your tool, they don't understand your story, there is a third tool that you get to use that's a very practical tool, and that comes down to being your authority. You see, he was told to take, um, go down to the Nile River, the river which represented the life, sustained the life of the empire, and to fill up some water and dump it out on the ground and it would become blood. Now, blood in the ancient world is the sign of death and the sign of judgment, right? In other words, he's saying that which you deem as life-giving, that which you think is going to support you, that which you think is going to provide for you, that which you think is going to give you everything you need, uh, if it's not God, it's death. You're trusting in death. And you have an authority as people who God has called to do a work for him to speak the truth to people about that, that it is death. Okay? And so you get the blood and the water. It's a symbol of death, but it's also that blood and water is a symbol of something else. It's birth. It's new life when a baby is born. And so you think of Jesus on the cross. They put the spirit aside. What comes out? Blood and water. It's a symbol of death. It's judgment, but it's also a birth, the birth of something new. It's, it's going to be the birth of the church. It's the birth of new life for, for you and for me. And, and so what you can do is you can tell people the truth about things. Uh, like Proverbs 14 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is death. And so you can share people, hey, the flow you're in or that thing which you're drinking from or what you think is going to be so life-sustaining is actually death. It's going to destroy you. It's going to kill you. But there's somebody else who died for you and you can have new life and you can drink of him and you can never thirst again. And you have that ability, that authority to share that. And of these three tools, I think it's that third one that is actually the key. So God said to Moses, They may not believe you with the first two or the second two, but he tells them the third one, that's the one that they're going to listen to. And so back in our story, Moses, what does he do, right? After all of this, what does he do? Well, you need to read the story because we're out of time, uh, so you can read it later this afternoon. Uh, But we're going to pray. 